The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Exodus, chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidium, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is this the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came out and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. We are studying the book of Exodus. We've been studying the book of Exodus for the past few months. For those who are just joining us today, let me catch you up to speed really fast. First, Exodus has taught us that if we build our lives, okay, our identities, who we are at our core on anything other than God, that thing that we built our life on will enslave us no matter how good it is. And we have learned that God wants to to set us free from those things that enslave us. But freedom comes in two primary ways. First, there is a definitive act that sets us free. For the Israelites... It was the final plague and the parting of the Red Sea. From that point on, they were free people. Freedom for the believer or freedom for the Christian comes the moment they place their faith in the risen Jesus Christ. God sets them free immediately from the things that enslave them. But here's what we've been, the second thing we've been learning from the book of Exodus. After a person has been set free, we find out that living free is 
more of a process than a definitive act. It began with a definitive act, but then it's a process that keeps going on. It only takes a moment to get us out of slavery, but it takes a lifetime to get the slavery out of us. And the Bible calls this process of getting the slavery out of us sanctification. It's a big word. It's a $5 word for you. It's oftentimes a painful process that teaches us, listen, we saw this last week, how to rely on God, how to be more dependent upon God. So what's interesting, as we mature in our relationship with our parents or in our maturity in ourself, we become more independent. We need our parents less, right? We hopefully, by the time we're 40 or 50, move out of the basement and get our own job, right? I don't want to offend any snow, millennial snowflakes this morning, right? No, what, so the process of maturing for a person is greater and greater independence, but it's the exact inverse, the exact opposite for a believer. The, the process of maturing, the process of sanctification teaches us how to become more and more dependent on the Lord and less on our own power and our own strength. And over the last few chapters, we have seen God's people in the beginning stages of their sanctification. And honestly, it's been a little ugly. It hasn't been pretty. They have been, they've complained about the traveling directions, right? And they accused Moses of trying to kill him. Then they blamed Moses for the bitter water in chapter 15. And then last week in chapter 16, they grumbled against Moses because of the lack of good food and said they were better off back in Egypt. What a slap in the face. And today we see it's water again. They're grumbling and complaining and quarreling about water again. Now, can we just say, aren't, are they not being a little unfair here to Moses? Can we just say that? Or is this just my pastoral perspective on this text this morning? Right? They're forgetting the good news of the gospel. They're forgetting the good news. They're forgetting, hey, you don't wake up with a whip on your back anymore. Right? You're not enslaved. You're not controlled by Egypt anymore. They're forgetting the freedom that this new experience has brought them. They're forgetting how God has provided for them time and time again. They're forgetting how God has used Moses to rescue them from the slavery in Egypt. They are doubting the Lord's goodness and they're blaming the Lord's servant. And it, it shows us here, the people, though they're free, their souls are still enslaved. They're still slaves on the inside. When things go well, they're quiet. I didn't say they're happy. <laughs> when things go well, yeah, that's, that's about how it should be. But when things go bad, when things get difficult, instead of responding in faith, they lash out in fear. They wallow in doubt and condemnation, and they have no problem pointing their finger and blaming their leaders. Moses, look what you've done. But honestly, as much as I want it to be, Exodus 17 is not really about them. The chapter we just read is actually about God and Moses. Moses is being sanctified too. Though Moses was never a slave in Egypt, 
he has also been enslaved to other gods and other things. We saw in the beginning chapters of Exodus that Moses, when he, he, he kind of rose up and he decided to lead the people in his own strength. And how did that go for him, right? It didn't go well. He rose up and saw some injustice going on and he stepped into it and tried to handle it in his own strength. And he ended up killing an Egyptian, committing murder and burying him in the sand. And then the next day when he went out, the Israelites, they were quarreling. And he said, he stepped into the middle of the quarrel. And they said, what are you going to do? Kill me like you did that Egyptian? Who made you ruler over us? And Moses lost all of his leadership capital. And he ran away to the backside of the desert for 40 years. But it was there that God taught Moses how to be a faithful shepherd how to lead in humility, how to depend upon him, how to be out of the limelight of Egypt and to do the hard work of faithfully feeding, leading and protecting sheep. This was Moses' school of leadership. And we saw early on that he passed it with flying colors. He came out of Midian, a changed man. But just like all of us, the process of growth, listen, the process of sanctification is never over. And over these next two chapters, we're going to learn some really important lessons about being human. And we're going to learn some really important lessons about human leadership through the life of Moses. Now, you might be saying, oh, I don't really care about leadership. I'm not a leader. Yeah, I bet you are. All of us are leaders in some capacity, whether you're leading a ministry, whether you're leading a missional community, whether you're leading a business, a department, a classroom, a home, right? You're leading your children. All of us have some form of leadership, right? We're on the leadership spectrum somewhere. And it's important for us, whether it's just, I mean, because we're called to be a disciple. And basically being a disciple is going to someone and saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And so if, you have, if you're making any disciples right now at all, you're in leadership in some form and some capacity. And you need to learn some lessons about the, the reality of human leadership from the life, life of Moses. And the more people you lead, the more you need to understand the lessons that we're going to learn from Moses this morning. And I'm going to let you know, it's been doing good work on my soul. So if none of y'all say amen, I'll say amen to myself this morning. I needed this text. All right. We're going to learn three things over the next three weeks, two of them today, one next week. The first one is this, Moses and all human leadership we're going to see Moses gets emotionally tired and he sins and he needs grace. Secondly, Moses gets physically tired and he needs the grace of people to come alongside of him and help him. And then next week, we're going to see that Moses is relationally worn out and he needs to delegate and he needs uh, better structures and better systems, and he needs more people involved. So we see Moses get emotionally tired, Moses get physically tired, and Moses get relationally tired. And we're going to learn from that this morning. Let's jump in. Uh, chapter 17, verse 1. We're going to see that we're going to learn this. Human, humans are all emotionally limited. And here we're going to see the, limit, the, the emotional limitations of Moses. 17 verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. So God is leading them on step by step, stage by stage. 
And they camped at Rephidim where there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled. This is an argument. They're fighting with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses, you're mean. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now here we see, you might not pick it up right away, but we learn that Moses is wearing down, right? The people grumble, Moses responds. The people grumble, the mom, Moses responds. The people complain, Moses responds. The people quarrel, Moses is getting frustrated. He's emotionally getting worn thin. He's getting stretched. Being tired here as a leader is not a sin. Every mama said, amen. Being tired is not a sin, but when we are worn down emotionally and we're stretched too thin, it is easier to sin, right? When we're tired. I haven't met anyone who gets sweeter the, tire, the more tired they get, right? We get quicker to respond in anger. We lash out. We get short-tempered. And here we have Moses in this tired state, and he grows. They, people really don't do anything different. They've been doing, this is their modus operandi. They're complainers, they're grumblers, they're slaves coming out of Egypt. This is how they act. This is how they respond. Moses, but now Moses, it's the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. And so Moses here, he takes it personally. What does this got to do with me? And he loses faith in God for a second, and he sins. Now, if you're just reading this, you, you might not be able to see that. But four or five different places throughout the Bible, Psalm 106, 32, Numbers 27, 14, and 2024, Deuteronomy 32, 51, all say this right here is where Moses sins. And because of Moses' response right here, God does not allow him to go into the promised land. When he gets to the promised land, the edge of the promised land, and he overlooks it, God says, you and Aaron, because of this, the quarreling at Meribah that you did, you're actually going to die here, and, and your boy is going to bring, your, your, your boy that we're about to see is going to lead the people into, Joshua is going to lead the people into the promised land. So we look and we're like, this isn't a big deal, but God saw it as a big deal. Now why? What, what's the big deal? What's going on here? This is the great danger that we all face when we're leading anyone. Moses, in this moment of weakness, has forgotten the one thing that makes Christianity distinct from every other religion on earth. He has forgotten the one thing that gives Christianity its power to change people from the inside out. Moses has forgotten the gospel Listen, no one, no matter how great of a leader you are, no matter how many people you're shepherding, no one graduates from the gospel. The gospel is not a, a course that you take and then you move on from. It's not something you learn once and, oh, I've got that. I'm a master of the gospel. And now I'm going to move on to things that are more deeper that I need to understand. 
No one graduates from the gospel. The gospel is simple enough for a child to understand, and yet it's profound enough that the most brilliant minds that have ever lived have spent their entire lives plumbing its depths, and no one has ever reached the bottom. So here we have Moses, leader extraordinaire, God's man, God's prophet, God's redeemer, needing a refresher course in Gospel 101. Look how he responds to the people's lack of faith. Look what he says in verse 4. He says this, So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're ready to stone me. What shall I do with this people? Now, let me just, have you ever heard yourself saying that? How many times, what am I going to do with these people? These kids, they become somebody else's, right? Husband gets home, you better get your kids out of here. Your kid, who? Yeah, get, get these kids out of here. They're not mine no more. They've been mine all day, they're yours now. Figure them out. What am I going to do with these people in my missional community? What am I going to do with my siblings, my students, my family? What am I going to do with these people? It seems like an honest question, but the theology behind it is damning. Moses is flunking gospel 101 right here. When Moses looks at the people, he sees nothing but frustrating sinners. If it wasn't for these people, man, my life would be so much better. He forgets, listen, he forgets how much they've suffered. Let's not forget that, Moses. While you were growing up in the palace, we've been slaves our entire lives. He forgets how abused they've been, how lost, living their whole life like sheep without a shepherd. But you know what? He's also right. They, they are sinners. They are, like just because you've suffered a lot does not give you a free pass to sin however you want. You may have had a really rough upbringing. You may have had a, never had a mother or a father who shepherded you and taught you the gospel and taught you how to walk in his ways and you've suffered a lot and you've been wounded a lot and we've got kind of like some PTSD going on. That, hey, that, that's, re, that's real, but no one gets a pass. It gets to say, because I've suffered a lot, now I have an excuse to sin. Absolutely not. They are responsible. We are all responsible for our own actions and we should know better and they should have known better. God has been faithful to them over these last couple months and they have a terrible short-term memory. So he's right. Moses is right. They are sinners. But here's the problem. Here's the real problem. Moses doesn't see himself as one of them. In Moses' mind, he's in the right, they're in the wrong, right? This is a Western. Moses is the only guy wearing a white hat, and everybody else has got the black hat on. Moses is forgetting the first piece of the gospel, that all people are sinners that deserve the just wrath of God. 
just because Moses is a leader of men doesn't mean he's any less of a sinner than anyone else. If Moses was believing rightly, right? If Moses was understanding the gospel and believing it rightly, if he had gospel eyes, he would be saying this, what is wrong with us? Lord, have mercy on us sinners. How will we ever get to where we're going? How will we ever become who you want us to be? Lord, help us. We need your grace. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, what is wrong with them? What should I do with these people? Now listen, this is almost always one of the first signs that a person either doesn't understand the gospel or they've forgotten it. They remove their neighbor from the category of sufferer and they remove themselves from the category of sinner. They believe that the problem with their family, the problems with their missional community, the problems in our country, it's those people. The world would be such a better place if more people were like me. Now, we, very few of us would say that. But how often do we find ourselves thinking it as we're reading the news, as we're scrolling our Facebook feed? What is wrong with these people? We're flunking Gospel 101. That type of thinking is dangerous. This is what the Bible calls the pride of man. It will ruin your relationships. It pushes you away from people who struggle and people who, you know, aren't like you. They're not put together. Pushes you away from people like that. It'll kill your missional community. It's one of the, th it's the one thing that will keep you out of heaven. God says that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But this is also in this moment. Now listen, so we kind of see the people are jacked up. Moses is jacked up. I hopefully, hopefully if you just did some, you know, inventory there, you might say, well, I think I'm kind of jacked up. That, like, that's not good news. I want to start my year out like that. Right? I'm trying to believe the best. Positive thinking. I got my Oprah on, man. I'm ready to do this. Universe is on my side this year. But I'm going to say, if you can admit that, if you can sit in that for a moment, I think we're going to see how gracious and kind and long-suffering God is when people actually can admit that. Moses is still a proud man. The people are still unsatisfied grumblers. Both of them deserve some kind of punishment. Un they're both, all of them are ungrateful people who refuse to trust the God that is right in front of them. Moses should have just went right to God and go, all right, I've got a water problem. But instead, what's wrong with these people? They're about to kill me. Moses is losing faith. Really? How, how, these people can't kill you. You have the God who's got a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke and opening up waters on your side. These people aren't going to kill nobody. 
But Moses thinks they are, and he fears. But look what God does. God does not give them what they deserve. Moses thinks the people are going to kill him. Moses probably wants God to take out some of them. But look, look what God does instead. Look at verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people. That means walk out. That means lead. Now, this is interesting. Moses has just sinned. He's kind of emotionally stressed out and emotionally tired. The people are on his knee, on his nerves. And God says, go lead. He doesn't disqualify him immediately. Go on, pass pass on before the people. Go on, lead. You're emotionally tired. You're emotionally, but lead. All right, now let's keep reading taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff. I love it. This is uh, really the rod with which you struck the Nile and go, the rod of God. Behold, I will... Whoa, 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 whoa. Behold, look at verse six. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. That means um, str- suffering, and what does it mean? Quarreling and testing. Listen to this. With the, this is what Moses is doing. God's saying this. Pass on, lead before the people, take the rod of God in your hand. Now this is a powerful scene. There's struggling, there's quarreling, And God says, I want you to lead in this very bold way. Take the rod of God, walk before the people. This is like a king with his scepter or a judge with his gavel. But look at verse six. It says this, God says this to him. I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. This is the only place in the entire Bible where God says that. I will stand before you. He says, I will stand here And you shall strike the rock with the rod of God and water will come out of it. Now, there's a lot of scenes in the Bible where men stand before God for judgment, right? To speak to him, men come before. This is the only place where God says, I will stand before you. Take the rod that I'm in front of the rock and strike the rock. See, the people want to strike Moses. Moses wants to strike the people, but God stands up in front of them and says, no, strike me instead. And Moses does and water pours out from the most unlikely place, a rock in the desert. See, God meets their needs. God satisfies their longings. He quenches their thirst. They're ungrateful. They're undeserving. And God in his mercy and long suffering gives them what they need. In the desert. And you know what? What's really interesting? You go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul, the apostle Paul, looking back on this scene, he says this, that all the people drank from the rock and this rock was Christ. Moses and the people deserve punishment. They have lost faith in God, and yet instead of punishing them, Jesus stands up before these sinners and says, don't kill each other, kill me. 
Don't strike each other. I will stand before Moses. I will take the rod of God. Strike me so that they can be blessed. I will take the punishment that you deserve. This is the grace of God. This is the gospel. Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ takes on flesh and enters into creation, Paul looks back and says, Paul knows Jesus was 30-something when he died. He knows he wasn't physically walking the earth in the time of Moses. Paul, is, he's a theologian extraordinaire. He's an expert in the biblical law. And when he looks back and he reads this account, he says, the rock was Jesus, the one who was struck so that you could be nourished. This is the gospel. We are like Moses. We are like the people. We are completely undeserving of his love and kindness because we've rejected him so many times. But Jesus takes our place and takes the blows that we deserve. And from his side flows the water of life. Jesus said, come to me all who thirst and I will give you the water of life. So, emotionally, Moses is emotionally worn out, and yet God still uses him. Even with a sinful, emotionally drained leader, God uses him to meet his people's needs. Now, this is good for news for me. This is good news for all of us. We are all leaders in some capacity, and God isn't waiting for us to be emotionally full to use us. He uses tired people. He uses emotionally drained people. He used Moses, and he'll use you and me. Now, secondly, Moses is also physically limited. Let's read in chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek, Amalek is a descendant of Esau. If you go back and you can study the book of Genesis, or you can go back and you can listen to our sermons from the book of Genesis, Jacob and Esau, uh, God chose Jacob, God rejected Esau, and this, the descendants of Amalek are descendants, or Am, the people of Amalek are the descendants of Esau here, and so they're at war, they, they are the strife between the people of Israel that come from Jacob and the people that come from Esau. Uh, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim, so Moses said to Joshua, okay, here we got Joshua. Now, Joshua is Moses' young apprentice, okay? He's his church planter in residence, all right? Joshua is Moses' Padawan, okay? He's the young guy that he's training to take things on, to carry more responsibility, to grow into manhood, and he's eventually going to lead God's people into the promised land, okay? So it's his apprentice. And now this is his first so far that we've understand in the Bible, this is his, Joshua's first opportunity to do something for God's people, to lead in some capacity. All right? So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Amalek is attacking them. They have to push them back and fight them off. Now, this is not a trained army. They've been in slavery their whole life. They're coming out. They've probably got some weapons. They've got some swords. They've got some things, but they're not you know, these guys are not trained warriors. And so Joshua's first job is to raise up some men to lead a battle, basically. All right, let's keep reading. While Mo so Joshua did as Moses told, oh, I'm sorry. Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, I will stand on the top of the hill 
with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hands with the staff of God, the rod of God, Israel prevailed. They were winning. But whenever Moses lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. All right. Now, first off, we got to ask ourselves, this is kind of interesting, right? This is a young guy, lead the troops, go, you know, learn responsibility, learn leadership, rally people together. Moses, the God says, Moses, you stand up here with your arms above your head, the staff up. And if the staff's up, we win. All right. Now this is kind of interesting because he learned that like, if he dropped it, they lost. I hate to be like, Moses gets tired, dropped it. Israelites' heads come up. Whoa. You know, like, this is a big deal. I guess I got to keep my hands up, right? This is, a, this is a problem. Now, why would God do that? Think about this. Moses has, he struck the Nile and whoosh, it opened, right? He's caused all kinds of miracles to take place. He's raining manna down every single day right now. He's opened up rocks to spore out water. Why doesn't God just give him some Arnold Schwarzenegger biceps to keep this thing handed up? Why, why can't he just fill him with energy and he just never gets tired. He's just standing there all day, all night. Looks like the Statue of Liberty, right? Just rock hard all the whole time. Why? Why? See, he could have strengthened Moses' arms, but instead, God is teaching Moses, you're emotionally limited, you're also physically limited. You have to include others. You need the strength of others. Moses is a man too. He's not Superman. Oh, how we want our leaders and our heroes to be supermen and superwomen. You watch the ultimate fighting championship. Any person that's on a roll, they start pumping this person up as the greatest fighter of all time, unbeatable. And then all of a sudden, every single time they step into the ring one time and some fluke happens and lights out. And then that person gets back in the ring and anybody that touches them, just, they just fall out and they get knocked out. And these, the, pe- the look on their face is like, I'm a human. I can be knocked out. I can lose blows their mind. Moses is a man too. He's not Superman. He gets emotionally tired. He gets physically tired. Your leaders get emotionally tired. They get physically tired. You get emotionally tired and physically tired. Moses needs others to help him accomplish God's mission. Building this church ain't about me. It's not about just the elders. It's about all of us. Leading God's people into victory wasn't just about Moses. Look how many other people are involved. Joshua's leading the troops. Young men are down there swinging a sword and and fighting the battles. I imagine other people are making the lunches and preparing people and taking care of the wounded. You've got Aaron and her, right? They've got this really awkward job of just kind of standing next to Moses and holding his arms up, right? Who wants that job, right? Right? Number one and number two, you're seeing all the young men out there swinging swords and you're just right here. 
Doing all right? Okay. You good? I'm good. All right? Who wants that job? But it's important. Everyone has their part to play. If they don't do this, his hands come down, he gets tired, and people die. Now listen, how much more so for us in the kingdom of God? My Facebook feed's blowing up this week of a young man who who was taken too soon, and he died. Did that person know the gospel? I never knew him. I don't even know who he was. Friends of my friends. But this is more than just people die. This is people die, and their eternities are lost forever if they don't know Jesus Christ. All of us are needed. I'm going to flip to Ephesians chapter 4. If you, if you could flip your Bibles and go there. It's not going to be on the screen unless the people can read my mind, which I don't think anyone can. Ephesians 4, verse 11 through 16. This is what the Apostle Paul says to the, the churches in Ephesus. He says this, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers the shepherds and teachers, listen, to equip the saints. Listen, say, that's me. Say, that's me. Saints, that's you. I know you you didn't think you were a saint. Roman Catholic Church might not say you were a saint, but biblically, you are a saint. If you are in Christ, you are considered a saint. Paul says here that God gave the pastors and the prophets and the apostles and the evangelists and the teachers to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's saying the only way to be mature is to be a part of a body of Christ and for everyone to be doing their job. My job is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, to shepherd one another, to disciple one another, to speak good gospel words to one another. If you go on and read, it says speaking the truth in love building each other up in the likeness of Jesus. It takes all of us to build a church. It takes all of us to reach a city, not just the pastors, not just the elders, not just the deacons, not just the missional community leaders. You, we all have a part to play. And Moses' physical limitation, his physical weakness shows us that. Moses was great. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, but he needed people to come alongside him and hold up his arms so that he could do the work of God that God called him to do and they could do what God had called them to do. Now listen, God, what is this teaching us here, man? God still uses tired and worn out people. I thank God because I think that's all there is these days. God didn't use tired people. He wouldn't be using nobody. And many of us think that our emotional and our physical limitations make us unfit for discipleship or unfit for leadership or unfit to be used by God. And that's just not true. Let me me kind of, this has the potential to... You know that Jesus was emotionally limited too? Jesus had an emotional gas tank and he had an alarm (laughs) 
right? When it got down past E, the alarm would go off and he would drop what he's doing and he would go out into the wilderness. He'd go out into the desert and he would find time to be with the Lord, to be with his father in prayer. In John eleven thirty five, we see Jesus weeping. Lazarus, his friend, dies. Jesus knows he's going to die, but Lazarus dies and Jesus wept and he wept so hard that the people looking at him said, look how much he loved him. Listen, to weep, I mean, that's draining. That's emotionally draining. No one is weeping and then just the next second they're happy-go-lucky. There's a weight to it. Takes emotional energy. And Jesus knew when your emotions get taxed like that, you have to recharge and refuel. You need time with God and you need fuel. You need to be refueled by the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself was emotionally limited. And you know what? Jesus was also physically limited. Jesus had to eat. Jesus got hungry. Now, there's some of us that just love eating. We look forward to our next meal. We plan our days around our meals. And then there's others that that are like me that I really get annoyed by eating. About three o'clock every day, I'm like, I forgot lunch. Dang it. Why is my stomach, you know, eating itself right now? This is painful. What's going on? Oh, I need food. I'm not God. I'm not self-sufficient. I'm rely. I, I am. I'm a limited person who needs sustenance. Jesus was too. Je- Jesus had to sleep. Jesus didn't heal everyone in his vicinity. There were people that were crowding around Jesus that didn't get what they wanted. They didn't get the healing that they needed. He was limited by space. If he was in Jerusalem, he wasn't in Judea. He wasn't in somewhere else. He was in one place at a time. He often left crowds of people. Hear this, if you're a leader. Jesus left crowds of people unfulfilled. There's scenes where people are clamoring after him. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And Jesus slips right through the midst of them and leaves them. Jesus grabs his disciples, jumps in a boat, takes off. Jesus, in his physical, limited body, left people unfulfilled, left some people unfulfilled. If you're believing that everyone in your life is going to be fulfilled by your presence, then you're thinking you're better than Jesus. But unlike us, Jesus, though in the flesh, never sinned in response to his limitations. Jesus leaned on the Father. Jesus prayed in faith. Jesus fasted and prayed. And interestingly enough, I have not found any place in the Bible where Jesus was frustrated at his limitations and wished he could do more. It's fascinating to me. There's a scene at the end of Schindler's List where the guy has been buying and selling Jews to save them, right? And there's this 
scene at the end when the war's over and he realized he looks around his house. He'd sold almost everything he had, but he looks around his house. He's like, I could have sold this and I could have got one more person. I could have had one more person. He has all of this weight on him, all of this responsibility on him. Like I could have done more. I could have done more. Jesus didn't live like that. He said, I only do what the father has given me to do. I only say what the father has given me to say. Jesus was comfortable with his limitations. He was satisfied in the midst of his limitations. Jesus was okay being Jesus. He didn't desire to be the father. He didn't desire to be able to heal everyone and minister to everyone, speak to everyone and have relationships with everyone. Our society today would have a real problem with Jesus. If, he, if, if, we, if, if what happened in the New Testament happened today and Jesus dropped down among us and he chose 12 people and he wouldn't get on Twitter and he wouldn't be your friend on Facebook and he had 12 people and he had three, three close people. He went on. That is so inclusive. That is so divisive. What is, who does he think he is? These 12 people are so special. Why can't I get on the inside there? Who is he to do that? We'd be walking, watching him walk on water and multiply bread and going, that's not fair. I want to be in that group. Jesus, while in the flesh, let God be omnipresent. He let God be omniscient. He let God be all-knowing and all-powerful and everywhere all at the same time. And he was okay being limited in his human flesh. Listen, are you okay with your limits? I meet so many people who are so busy. They're so stressed out. They live their lives in this constant state of, am I doing enough? Am I working hard enough? Am I parenting well enough? And it seems at the bottom of their souls, if they would pause and do some reflection and, and maybe have someone talk to them and get some counseling, that they might see that down at the depths of their soul, they're really trying to ask God, God Am I enough? Just me. Am I enough? Do you really want me just the way that I am? Do you love me just the way that I am? Or are you waiting for some better version of me to show up? See, I think many of us think that God will be really into us when the better version of us finally shows up. And by that, most of us mean the me without limitations. The me that doesn't freak out like Moses when he's tired. The me that doesn't need help from other people to get through the day. The me that can keep the house clean and the kids fed and a 20-minute quiet time with the Lord without locking myself in the bathroom. Sorry. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, friend. But if you're living your life like that, you've been believing a lie, and it sounds like you are a slave to it. You think you'll be good enough. You think you'll be enough when you 2.0 shows up? 
But the reality is when U2.0 shows up, you'll already be hoping for U3.0. You'll already be frustrated with the current version. Here's the good news this morning. Jesus didn't just die for some future version of you. He died for all of you, past, present, and future. And listen, this is fascinating to me. Jesus was okay with his own limitations. And when he ran into people, when he ran into people that frustrate us, people that drain us, when he ran into people like Moses and, his, and the Israelites here, when he ran into the, all these people that just could not get their act together, he didn't say like Moses, what shall I do with these people? Rather, he says, as they're killing him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is the only God that when you fail him, you get grace. He's the only God that when you deserve punishment, he steps in front of it and he takes it for you. Jesus has already died for you. He's already loved you to the moon and back. Not some future version of you, you. He stands right now before the Father as our righteousness. When Satan accuses, Jesus just stands up and says, look at me. I am their righteousness. I am their surety. They are in me, and I stand before the throne of God. And I was dead, and I've been resurrected, and I'm glorified, and that's their future as well because of the work that I have done. Jesus. He's already, if you've put your faith in him, he's already given you the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit reminds us of the Father's love for us, to strengthen us in our daily walk, to make us more dependent on the Father. I read this interesting quote this week. It's a long quote by an Anglican pastor from the 18th century named John Newton. And this woman who was in Christ, she was a Christian in his church, and she was feeling insecure. She was, she was frustrated by her limitations. She wondered, why would God even care about me, a sinner? Why would he listen to my prayers? How could he love me? And she kind of was like, you know what? I, I, I wish I was an angel. And listen, we don't be, nobody becomes an angel, okay? Angels are completely different beings, right? You don't just... No, nobody becomes an angel when they die, right? God doesn't need any more angels, right? Angels were created before us. She, she kind of thought, God, I bet God was really into the angels. How could you? Angels have never sinned. How could, how could he be into me? And this is what, this is the part of the response of John Newton. He says this, there is, my dear madam, a difference between the, holy, the holiness of a sinner in that of an angel. The angels have never sinned, nor, nor have they tasted of redeeming love. What's he saying? The angels, listen, angels never got redemption. If, when an angels did sin, they got condemned forever, no second chance, no redemption. Those angels are 
demons. They have no inward conflicts. They have no law of sin warring in their members. Their obedience is perfect. Their happiness is complete. Yet if I be found among redeemed sinners, I need not wish to be an angel. Perhaps God is not less glorified by your obedience. And not to shock you, I'll add mine than by Gabriel's, the angel. It is a mighty manifestation of his grace indeed when it can live and act and conquer in such hearts as ours. When in defiance of an evil nature and an evil world and all the force and subtlety of Satan, a weak worm, that's us, is still upheld and enabled not only to climb, but to thresh the mountains. When a small spark is preserved through storm and floods. In these circumstances, the work of grace is to be estimated, not merely from its imperfect appearance, but from the difficulties it it has to struggle with and overcome. And therefore, our holiness does not consist in great attainments, but in spiritual desires and hungerings, thirstings and mournings and humiliation of heart, poverty of spirit, submission, meekness, and cordial admiring thoughts of Jesus and dependence upon him alone for all we want. Indeed, these may be said to be great attainments, but they who have most of them are most sensible that they in and of themselves are nothing, have nothing, can do nothing, and see daily cause for abhorring themselves and repenting in dust and ashes. It's our weaknesses. It's in our limitations where we see, where we feel our need for him, where we're drawn into him, where God's grace and God's redeeming loves, love shines the brightest. This morning, I need to remember the gospel. We're emotionally limited. We sin. We need grace. We're physically limited. We need grace. Let's remember the gospel. Let us repent of our sins and let us come to him that he accepts us and loves us with all our limitations. Father, we would never have thought We would never have came up with this plan of salvation, this gracious reality. We separate the world and those people and our people. We hate our limitations and strive to be omnipresent and omniscient and omniscient. We reject just like Moses, the reality that we're limited. Help us see the work of Jesus on our behalf as proof positive that we're loved where we're at. You're working in us the U2.0, you, you are maturing us, you are growing us, you are changing us, but you love us where we are. 
You love us in the midst of the ugliness, selfishness in our hearts. And would you, through the power of the gospel this morning, set us free? What would it be like to be okay with the limits you've placed upon us? To really believe we can't meet everyone's needs. We don't have what it takes to create perfect children. We don't have what it takes to create perfect organizations or, or to raise perfect children or disciple perfect, perfect disciples. We don't have what it takes. We're limited. We need you. What would it feel like to have the weight of that lifted off us? Father, I pray that you'd give a sense of it this morning as we come before you and we bring nothing to you. We come to you with open hands and in these open hands, you place the body of Jesus Christ. Let us eat and be satisfied. Let us take the blood of Christ and drink and be satisfied that was shed on our behalf. This is the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.